and welcome to Warhammer 40K's Grim History from the Beyond. I'm Zekthar. And I'm Yixen. And we are the chroniclers of all that was, and all that will be, in the 41st millennium. We've seen the rise and fall of many empires, and this week we'll be looking into the sons of Ultramar, the Ultramarines. That's right, Zekthar. The Ultramarines, also lovingly known as the Smurfs. This month, we will be taking a deep dive into Rebute Gilman, famous Ultramarines, the Primaris Project, and of course, our Q&A at the end of the month when we answer your questions. Of course, Yuxin. But to our dear listeners, if you like our stuff, please subscribe, follow, like, and comment. And if you wish to help us, you can click the support podcast button on any of our descriptions on Spotify. Quite right, Sektar. If you like what we do, don't hesitate to support us on Spotify. We wish to keep this free and without ads. So if you find folks truly enjoy this, you can help. If you click on our support button on our Spotify channel for 99 cents a month, we can continue doing our stuff without those hated ads. Now, mind you, if you wish to do more, feel free. But this is all we ask, just 99 cents. Well, Zikdar, let's get into it, shall we? Well, this week, I thought we would jump ahead in time to the end of the 13th Black Crusade, and more importantly, the Ultramar campaign where Gilliman's rebirth takes place. Outstanding, brother. I know you enjoy the 31st millennia, but I myself do enjoy the more recent events of this dark galaxy. But, uh, you really think we can cover the whole 13th Black Crusade and the Ultramar campaign? (laughs) Nope. But fear not, brother, for I have a plan. I will give a brief recap on what took place in the 13th Black Crusade, and then we will be off on the great return of the Avenging Sun. Sounds good. So, I imagine you will be starting with Cadia? Indeed. Like most things that do with the Black Crusades, our story starts with Cadia. Dare I say, the end of Cadia. Inquisitor Katarina Greyfax watched with grim expression from the bridge of the Iron Revenant as the fortress world cracked and began to split. Cadia had fallen, and now was in its death throes. In a tremendous cacophony of destruction, the planet ripped apart, and then Cadia was no more. All that remained was an empty burning husk wreathed in fire floating through space, and the horrific fleet of the Black Legion, who was now their main concern. The remaining Loyalist fleet tried to flee, but due to the fact the Eye of Terror had begun to widen into what would be known as the Great Rift, the warp storms were too great for warp travel. It would be a race to escape, and they were sorely outmatched. Twenty solar hours into the retreat, the Dictator-class cruiser Hand of Satarail was crippled by enemy fire, to the loss of all hands and 10,000 souls. In the next ten solar hours, two frigates and a light cruiser met the same fate. Kahl bore the losses stoically, interpreting them as penance for his hubris on Cadia, and exhorted his servitor crews to further effort. As they continued their escape, more ships were lost to the hunger of the hunting ships of the Black Legion, yet their thirst for blood would not be quenched until every last loyalist was fed to the void of space. Kahl watched as ship after ship was destroyed and wondered about his recent choices in life. Curiosity had led Kahl to Cadia. Pride had held him there. Now the Iron Revenant would be lost and its precious cargo alongside. He had failed. Pardon me, brother, but this is... Archmagos Dominus Belisarius Call, the one we spoke of last week? Indeed. 
Belisarius Call is a 10,000 standard year old Archimagos Dominus of the Adeptus Mechanicus, one of the ruling lords of the priesthood of Mars. Skittering into battle on a multitude of metal legs, Belisarius Call is a nightmarish lump of flesh and machine, swathed in the robes of Martian red. Millennia of tinkering and obsessive self-improvement have left Call as quite grotesque, and his lumpen form towers to several times the height of a grown man. Yet what truly sets him apart is his mind, and more importantly, his curiosity. Even after 10,000 years of mechanical life, the still human part of his brain seeks to answer questions and riddles, which at times have gotten him into trouble. Yet he is still considered one of the wisest men in the galaxy, if you could still call him a man, that is. Increase drive! Threshold 17%! The stratagem shuddered as the Iron Revenant's crew enacted Call's orders. Greyfax needed no telepathy to know that Call understood the futility of his command. The Iron Revenant was doomed. But she would never have known of his secret had she not peered into his mind. An obligation, a sense of duty not yet fulfilled, drove the Archimagos. An imperative so closely guarded, she can only see its shape, not its detail. We cannot outrun this fate, intoned Celestine. Marshal Almerick stirred, his low growl carrying a warning. Would you have us offer our necks to the despoiler without a fight? The false saint turned from the viewport. I beheld this in a dream, a river of blood amongst the stars. The harder we struggle, the more certain our fate. We must find another way. Greyfax felt the old anger rise at these words. There is no salvation to be found in your heresy if... Yet she fell silent at Call's impatient gesture. Necessity considers all answers, however improbable the providence. She's heretic, Greyfax interjected. But then Greyfax fell silent. She reminded herself that Call's artificial lifespan far predated the Inquisition from which her authority sprang. She couldn't take his obedience for granted. A bold accusation, growled Call, for one whose blood sees with Necron artifice. Do not deny it. I perceive the nanomachines writhing beneath your skin. At once, Greyfax felt the mood in the stratagem shift. Almerick's expression darkened with fresh suspicion, reminding her of the Black Templar's unpredictable zeal. I remain uncorrupted. Cal observed her thoughtfully. So you say. I can even free you from the grasp. But for that, we must first survive. He shifted his attention to Celestine. What else did your vision show? What must we do? The saint indicated Colossus on the view screen. You will find salvation within the ice, and then our crusade will begin anew. Almeric nodded. Your crusade, lady. But we will follow you while strength remains. Disgusted, Greyfax turned away. The Celestinian crusade? The very thought of it made her skin crawl. Okay, now before I continue on, I figured we would give a little detail on who these few people are, because they're very important to our story. Well, the saint I still wonder about. Really? Why, why is that? Well, very little is known of the life of the battle sister known as Celestine before she was declared a living saint. Other than that, she was once a sister repentia of the Order of Our Martyred Lady that fought alongside the multitudes of the Imperial Faithful during the protracted war against the heretics of the Palatine Schism. 
Celestine was at the forefront of the first wave of the deadliest fighting and was thought to have been killed in battle before the capital city of the plant of Urchian. She fell that day, alongside with every other Repentia, but despite her defeat, it was said that she accounted for the deaths of over 100 enemies during the assault. As Celestine's body was reclaimed by her sisters and set among the honored dead, they saw that life still lingered within her, and the light of one touched by the divine will of the emperor glowed within her eyes. Cleansing her body of the blood and filth of battle, the sisters were astonished to find that her body lay flawless before them. The next solar day, the assault resumed with Celestine at the head of the Imperial forces. Since then, she just randomly pops up to help the Imperium in its darkest time. Like the fall of Cadia. I'm sorry, I just don't trust something that can't seem to die, has massive psychic powers, and angel wings to boot. Seems a bit fishy. <laughs> Fair enough, brother. But would you agree with me that she does seem to have the Empire's betterment at heart? Oh, most definitely. I'm not saying that she's evil or a demon or something. I just wonder about her. Perhaps next time she disappears, we can follow her through the warp. Or wherever she goes and discover her secrets. Uh, careful, brother. It seems like you're starting to grasp at a need for adventure. Bah, preposterous, brother. I just simply wish to know. Very well. But what do you think of our two remaining characters of the Celestine Crusade, Greyfax and Marius? Bah. Inquisitor Katarina Greyfax needs to be put back in the labyrinth Tesseract Christine pulled her from. Her eyes see only darkness and corruption, even where there aren't. Many had been put to the torch thanks to her decrees, many of which were innocent of the crimes of heresy. Since her escape from the clutches of the Necron overlord Trezine the Infinite on Cadia, Inquisitor Katarina Greyfax has become a figure wreathed in shadow and fear. Even those amongst her own Ordo Hereticus rarely speak her name above a whisper, and with good cause. Utterly uncompromising, devoid of mercy or remorse, Inquisitor Greyfax acts as the self-appointed executioner of any she names heretic. She is also a psychic of some power, a fact that has led to more than one of her peers to ironically brand her as a dangerous radical. And her telepathic abilities allow her to detect any lie, or so she says. Such a talent is an incredible boon to Greyfax's investigations. It allows her to hunt with impunity, knowing that those she condemns have already damned themselves with their own tainted thoughts. Oh, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. She says you're lying and people just nod in agreement? <sighs> yes. Uh. I tell you, brother, she is one of the most dangerous humans in the galaxy. Not necessarily to those who actually follow Chaos or Xenos. Although it goes without saying, she is a mighty warrior, wielding her power sword, named Tyrant Slayer and her Condemner Bolter. But she is a true danger to those she protects, humanity itself. Even more than Lord Marshal Marius Amoric. <laughs> I swear, brother, these Black Templars seem to be following me in our boxes. <laughs> Regardless, you know how last week I mentioned that there were some great Black Templars? Well, they are rare. Well, Marius Amoric is such a man. As stubborn as any of the sons of Dorne, he has learned that sometimes flexibility can be a boon, 
and therefore his tactics and stratagems are well counseled and thought out better than perhaps most of his straightforward peers. The thing I find most interesting is that he's worked quite a few times with the Eldari, which we'll be getting to in a few moments. But I must state that a Black Templar working with Xenos is almost as rare as the second coming of a Primarch. Now, I would love to get more into the man, and perhaps at the end of this Vox I will comment on his noble death, but we must press on. Indeed. And so the Iron Revenant set course for Colossus, the Ice Moon, under Celestine's direction, where they are pursued until they are saved by an unlikely ally, the Eldari. Using their abilities to open a webway portal, the remaining Crusaders and the Eldari escaped into the portal, which brings us to the beginning of the Ultramar campaign. Well, while all this was taking place, the realm of Ultramar was not doing so well. Tyranid Highfleet Leviathan was lurking on its borders in a war led by the Orc Warboss, simply known as the Great Arc Arsonist of Sheridan, was encroaching on their borders as well. Yet the worst was yet to come, for Abaddon the Despoiler had set his eyes on the system. You see, Abaddon has received disturbing news from his sorcerers. They have received prophetic revelations that Belisarius Call possessed a device of great importance that can turn the tide of the war. Shortly thereafter, the Warmaster is informed that Call was among those who had escaped into the webway with McCrag as the destination. This would not do, so Abaddon sent a sizable force of warriors from the Black Legion, the Iron Warriors, the Night Lords, and a number of other traitor factions to invade in hopes of halting Call's plans. While some of the forces was to attack the outer star system in effort to tie up potential loyalist reinforcements, the main force was sent on a direct course to the McCrag system itself. Unfortunately, Ultramar was in a time of recovery and consolidation from a devastating invasion from the Bloodborne. A chaos army of somewhere around 17,000 troops made up of traitors, renegades, mutants, madmen, and even Xenos. Led by the demon prince Makar and the iron warrior's warsmith Hanzao, the invasion cost the lives of 397 Ultramarines and untold numbers of Skitarian defense auxilia casualties. With Ultramarines reeling from these losses, they were not ready for the onslaught of Abaddon's Black Legion. The time was right for the traitors, and so the invasion begins. What are your thoughts on how precarious of a situation all of this was, brother? Hey, it sucks. <laughs> oh, I mean, you want a little more on that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was getting there. This is just, this is, honestly, this seems like, like the perfect storm for Abaddon to show up, quite frankly. I mean, with all this other crap that had been taking place. Now, mind you, anyways, we've kind of led this on anyways. Is This is just like this This doesn't happen every day. But, I mean, this is what? The 41st millennium. So, I mean, it's always war everywhere, right? Yeah, but generally... It's normally not this bad. 40% of a chapter disappearing isn't something that normally happens. <laughs> so, like I said, anyways, it, this, is, this isn't like your average Tuesday, but it's not unheard of kind of yeah. thing, right? <laughs> so, yeah, this is, I mean, this is kind of like, I think the perfect and golden opportunity for Abaddon to come in anyways and literally wipe out McCrog. It's kind uh, of funny how it wasn't 
planned though originally yeah I, I didn't really get into that abaddon actually had other places that he needed to be and that kind of he ends up i think if i recall right he ends up losing there and well he doesn't really lose i think he just kind of disappears and goes off to pout on a <laughs> demon planet i don't know he just Okay, so me and Yuxin, we were looking up anyways the 13th Black Crusade, and we were trying to find anyways what its conclusion was. Well, it doesn't necessarily have a conclusion. It just kind of moves into another crusade. So not another Black Crusade, mind you, but uh, I believe it's what the Dominata. What's the next crusade called? The Indominus Era? Yeah, the Indominus Era, which is, I believe there's a crusade in there anyways, followed by, I believe, the Terran Crusade. Correct. No. No? Okay, well... <laughs> Immediately following the Ultramar campaign, and this is actually also part of the 13th Black Crusade period, uh, they had the Terra Crusade where he decides to go to Terra. And... Oh, okay. But that whole thing, anyways, the, 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 the... It's happening at the same time, but... Right, but the Terran Crusade, if I recall right, anyways, is the start of the Indominus era, right? Uh, I think so. Okay. But, I mean, we're, we're getting far afield. But, yeah, so yeah, that's why I think Abaddon hadn't actually planned on, like, you know, conquering Ultramar. His his what? quest has always kind of been, anyways, just... <laughs> it, it's the same plan over and over and over again, it seems like. It's just, to Terra! I mean, <laughs> there's the no... The thing is, or, orcs are more, actually, they'll do that for a while, but subconsciously they'll go, maybe it won't work this way again. We'll change this here. Abaddon even have that sort of aspect, or has it always been pretty much we'll charge forwards? Well, no, it's always his whole idea, anyways, is to take Terra. Just like the orcs' whole idea, anyways, is that they're going to take Armageddon someday. But, you know, <laughs> we can't. Well, I don't know if they're necessarily, most of them are necessarily thinking that. I think some of them are just going, yeah, fight. Okay. Well, we talked, about the, we talked about the orcs last month. We're, we're done with the orcs. <laughs> but while this is all going on, Okay, as this storm is brewing, our little crusade, along with their Eldari saviors. What's that? Well, there's actually I want to mention uh, one oh. of the things that I found funny was the fact that the Bloodborne actually, even though it wasn't part of the Black Crusade, it had a larger Iron Warriors contingent than any of the Black Crusades had ever. Okay. I just find it interesting because it's just like, yes, he is the champion of all of chaos. Evadon is. And yet, he doesn't have as much power as you would think that he would. Well, he didn't. He didn't have the same power that Horus did. Well, I'll give you that. Yeah. I mean, because obviously, anyways, if he told, like, for instance, Fulgrim to do something, anyways, Fulgrim would just laugh and tell him to, you know, eat dirt. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. so <clears throat> I think he has, but he does have quite a bit of power over. Um, because at this point, remember, anyways. Uh, the Chaos Space Marines—they're not—they're not really Legion anymore. They're kind of more like war bands. So yeah. it has significant power over them. It's just you know, well, some he, of them. Well, I think if he shows up, they just kind of follow him, unless they've got you know a demon prince next to him. Just simply because I mean, he is—he is—he is pretty suit—he is pretty beefy when it comes to you know chaos. But we're we're getting I think too far afield here. Uh, you yeah. How about so, we continue we on with the. Palestinian crusade right now like i said before while this whole storm was brewing our little crusade along with their eldari saviors plopped out of the war on the small world of lathis 
Keep in mind, up till this point, the small group had been fighting and in a retreat. This was the first time they had a chance to catch their breath, which caused a few problems. Um, how shall I put this? Humans do not tolerate Xenos very well. That's a bit of an understatement, don't you think? Okay, fine. Let me rephrase. They hate Xenos. <laughs> now, to be fair, most Xenos species tend to try to, you know, murder humans rather than talking to them. And the Eldari don't really help themselves much either, being more arrogant than even a High Lord of Terra. Yet thanks to the saint and Call's words, they are able to calm ruffled feathers and come up with a game plan. Which was? Well, it's fairly simple, actually. Weave down the first Ultramarine they found and take the first flight to Macrog. There they would meet with the Lord of Ultramar, the captain of the Ultramarines, Marius Kelgar. That guy is awesome. Mind if I explain a little bit about him? Of course you can, Yuxin. But if you could save it for next week when we do notable Ultramarines... That way you can go farther into the depths of his awesomeness. Sounds even better. Well, folks, all you really need to know for this Fox is that he is the mighty chapter master of the Ultramarines. And will play a pretty important part to our little story. But brother, if I may ask a boon from you, could I at least go into a little detail on the leader of the Eldari in this juncture, Yvrain? Oh, why not at all, Yuxin? Honestly, I was actually just getting to her. Um, very well. Go for it. Well, Yvrain was originally born on Craftworld Bielton. She walked many paths from that of a dancer to a warlock to a warrior. She eventually became a famed Corsair leader until immunity forced her to flee into the webway. Yvrain later became a gladiator in Kamara fighting many foes before falling to a priestess of Morai Heg. However, while between life and death, she was resurrected by the awakening god, Inead. Um, who's Inead? Inead, sometimes called the Whispering God, is the Eldari god of the dead and represents the last hope of the dwindling Eldari species. Ah. Anyways, with this rebirth, Evrain became the emissary of the god of death, and since then has been carving out a little empire for the Inari, those that follow the god of death. Yet, she has done this unintentionally. Her true goal is to bring her god back from the dead so that they stand a fighting chance against the chaos, and more importantly, Slanesh. What makes her interesting is she is willing to work with humans to gain a better advantage. And when she discovered the Celestine Crusade on the ice moon of Colossus, she began to put together a plan that would gain her a mighty ally and in turn also might save the Empire of Man. Um, wait, um, um, you're getting too far ahead of our chronicling. Oh, um, my bad. But I think this sums her up, yes? Indeed. Uh, yeah, but getting back to our little troop, they made straight away to the closest city where they might find some ultramarines. To make a long story short, they were picked up by the Astartes and soon arrived on the strike cruiser called the Sword of Honor. While they were greeted cordially, none of the ultramarines truly trusted the group, especially because they traveled with Xenos. So they were sequestered to simple rooms and a small portion of the ship all the while being watched by human serfs toting naval shotguns with itchy trigger fingers. The Eldar bristled at this treatment, as did Marshal Almeric and his Astartes. But Saint Celestine, 
pacified her comrades once more with firm words, faith, and acceptance. With grumpy reluctance, the Crusaders made themselves at home as much as possible and simply bided their time, knowing this would be a long journey. Solar hours ran slowly into solar days. The omnipresent rumble of the ship's engines and the sluggish stirring of artificial gravity and recycled air became simple facts of existence. The Visark trained endlessly, even deigning to spar with Marshal Almerick. Pardon me, brother, but who is the Visark? Oh, actually, that's actually quite interesting. Uh, the Visark is an Eldar known as the Sword of Muned. And, and he was, had... Thank you. And was originally a Belton Dyer Avenger Exarch of the Silvered Blade Shrine, known as Larian Star Speaker, and had considerable standing with his craft world. He met Ivrain when she was just a mere aspect warrior, teaching her much of swordsmanship. Larian grew close to his student and developed strong feelings for her. He was saddened when Ivrain left his shrine and chose to instead become a witch and then outcast. The Visarch reappeared in Comorach. At the side of the newly awakened emissary of Yuned. Inead. Thank you. Ivran. Since then, he now acts as the guardian of Ivran and has fought alongside her on her expeditions to resurrect Yuned. Inead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I just can't it's see Ivran. the word. Not Ivran. Ivran. Oh. Anyways. Well, this is all interesting. What I find most interesting is the fact that he sparred with the Black Templar. Uh, what do you think of this interesting little niche in history, Yuxin? Two great combatants putting their hatred of each other aside out of boredom to test their skills in the crucible of a sword duel. They must have been really bored. I mean, really <laughs> bored. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> well, and, yeah, I just... To me, anyway, I wonder if they gain anyways, any sort of respect for each other. Because normally that sin tends to happen when you test yourself against somebody else. Or do you think that yeah. they were just so bored? They were just like, I'll fight anybody. <laughs> and then when they were done, it's just they like, yeah, go the ball. Shit. <laughs> they didn't give us a ball to throw against the wall. I mean, <laughs> you can't communicate with the Inquisitor because she'll bite my head off. Uh... <laughs> so instead he went to a Black Templar? <laughs> No, I'm oh. talking about the Black Templar. Oh, thinking that way. <laughs> uh, well, well, at least this guy has a similar, you know, something that we have in common. Yeah, <laughs> and I think <laughs> I think that honestly kind of drastically changes, anyways, how their dynamics change as the story goes on. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think at the very least, anyways, he probably they probably gained a little bit more respect for each other. As at least combatants, yeah, maybe but, they're they're respecting each other's skills, yeah. Um, but the concept is like we should be friends. No, I, I don't think that happened. <laughs> I don't even think that came. I, I will rip your throat out in two seconds if you even come close to hugging me. <laughs> you could just yeah, <laughs> I could just imagine the end of it anyway. Is like, oh, that was a pretty good scrap. Good job, man. And then the Templar just decking him. <laughs> Like, don't touch me ever <laughs> okay moving on <laughs> uh, well this is all interesting what happens next well during this time on the sword of honor inquisitor grayfax with the aid of archmados call was purged of the necron mind shackle scarabs that enforced her captivity this process was time consuming it took several days and racked the inquisitor with terrible agonies 
as the invasive cyber parasites restrain from her bloodstream. Despite the pain that she endured, Greyfax's iron will never faltered, nor did she show any but the most minor outward signs of pain. Instead, she concentrated on keeping a wary eye on St. Celestine. In private, Greyfax was beginning to suspect that Celestine's apparent divinity was more than a sham. She had seen the living saint battle against arch heretics and twisted traitors. She had seen her predict events about which she could not have known in advance. She had seen how the light of Celestine's faith repelled the wicked and brought new strength to the righteous. Yet Greyfax was an inquisitor of the Ordo Hereticus, a witchfinder whose first duty was to doubt and suspect all that seemed fair in case it concealed foulness at its heart. In Greyfax's long experience, true miracles were few and far between, and that which seemed a gift from the emperor was, more often than not, a tainted temptation laid by the gods of chaos. Thus, even as the seeds of hope grew in her heart that Celestine might be uncorrupted, and even through her own agonies, Katerina Greyfax kept watch over the living saint, alert for the slightest hint of duplicity. And completely forgetting about the other people. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. You know, <laughs> you know, the Zeno's over there and the yeah. guy that won't say anything about what he's carrying other than he has a mission. Well, I think, okay, with Call, I think it's more along the lines of just like, I, I can't, I can't muck with this guy. He's that powerful. I think that Plus, that's he just ripped out scarabs out of my <laughs> bloodstream. He is also actually helping her. So, <laughs> yeah, well, amidst the enforced tedium, none noticed that Ivrain beckoned Call away into a recessed cargo bay in which his auto reliquary had been stored. Beneath the mindless gaze of Call's cataphron servitors, the emissary of Muned. Muned. Thank you spoke earnestly with the Archimagos Dominus. The mysterious discussion waxed long. Ivrain labored to convince the intractable Magos of certain impalatable truths. Eventually, Call nodded his cowled head in agreement, a single curt gesture that brought the clandestine meeting to an end. Satisfied, Ivrain swept away in a whirl of whispering skirts, leaving the looming Archimagos Dominus to contemplate the ramifications of their meeting. Hmm... What could they possibly be talking about? Well, something important. Something you perhaps will explain in a bit? Indeed, but not yet. There's a battle to explain. <laughs> At last, after several solar days of real space transit, the Sword of Honor reached McCrag's orbital envelope. As the strike cruiser shook around them from the shudder of gun batteries discharging and void shields soaking up monumental connect impacts. The Celestinians and their allies were hurried through the starship's corridors under armed escort. As they boarded their Storm Raven gunships, they were informed by the pilots that a sizable Chaos Armada was even now engaging the Ultramar defense fleet over McCrag. The two factions, lumbering battleships, and blade-fast escorts filled the void with lance beams and torpedoes. Regardless, the gunship pilots vowed to get their charges down safely and deliver them for their audience with the Lord of Ultramar. Marnius Calgar had been alerted on their coming via heavily encrypted Vox communique and awaited their arrival with interest. This last comment was delivered in a flat tongue which suggested that perhaps, understandably, 
the Lord of Ultramar felt he had more pressing matters to attend than their mysterious holy mission. Accompanied by an escort of Stormhawks, the Storm Ravens weaved through the chaos space battles as they headed for McCrag. After a very rough ride, the Stormhawks arrived in an armored hangar of the city of Hera. The pilgrims emerged from their scorched, battered gunships into one of the fortress's many embarkation hangars. They found themselves surrounded by urgency on every side. Through this chaos of military bustle marched a band of chapter serfs, led by a single Ultramarine's battle brother. The warrior's helm was white and gold, and his armor bore numerous oath papers and honor markings. The helots who followed him bore gilded auto guns and stern expressions. The uniformed tabards of several were spattered with what looked like fresh blood, and it was clear to all that these soldiers had come directly from the defense of the fortress's walls. Announcing himself as veteran Sergeant Cassian, the Ultramarines welcomed the Celestinians to the fortress of Hera. He took a moment to nod respectfully to Marshal Almerich and his battle brothers, then requested that Call and his companions follow. Cassian turned briskly without waiting for an answer and marched the way across the hangar floor. Left with little choice, the uneasy allies followed the brisk surgeon as he ascended long granite ramp and led them into corridors of the Ultramarine's fortress. They marched along at a brisk pace through grand chambers, across railed walkways, and across void shield courtyards, where battle brothers blazed bolter fire from the fire steps above. The din of battle was never far away. Thunderous explosions shook the walls around them from time to time causing dust to fall like snow and electro-sconces to flicker. Hastened by Sergeant Cassian, the Celestinians and the Inari were taken to the Ultramarines' command center. Standing before the Hololith, faces set in frowns of concentration were Chapter Master Marnius Kelgar, First Captain Agaman, Chief Librarian Tigarius, and a gray knight whose scrollwork chestplate announced him as Grand Master Aldrich Foldis. Um, pardon me, brother, but perhaps I could give a very brief description on who this great knight is? Sure, but we must press on. <laughs> Agreed. Well, not to delve into him too deeply, Grand Master Aldrich Foldis is the commander of the Third Brotherhood, also known as a chapter of the Grey Knights. But more importantly, he is the warden of the Librarius, which means he is the chief librarian of an entire founding of space marines that are all psychers. <clears throat> to put that into a Terran 42 sports context... Uh, you and your Earth sports. Yes, but it actually makes sense this time. Chief Librarian Tigerius is the best psyker for the Ultramarines, yes? Yes. Well, imagine him as a college basketball player. He's very good. Better than most. But Voldus is Michael Jordan. You know, that was very well put. <laughs> Thank you. But that's all I got. Now, mind you, we will probably cover the librarian when we discuss the Grey Knights at length, but this is really all anybody needs to know about him right now. Very well. Where was I? Ah, yes. As Cassian led the pilgrims around the table, the hubbub died away, all eyes turning towards the extraordinary group. Solemnly, the chapter serfs moved aside and knelt with their heads bowed to the Lord of Ultramar, forming a corridor through which the pilgrims advanced. 
as they drew to a halt before Calgar and his assembled advisors. Marshal Omerick, too, dropped to one knee, with his sword held out before him, its point to the ground and his hand resting on the crossguard. His battle brothers followed suit, showing their absolute respect for a hero of the Imperium. Inquisitor Greyfax bowed deeply, as did Celestine. Only Call and the Nari remained standing, impassive despite the gravitas of the moment. In a clear voice, Cassian announced the pilgrims one by one. As the sergeant finished speaking and stepped back, an unexpected hush fell. Finally, Calgar said that he had no notion of who Belisarius Call might be, nor had he ever made any sort of pact with the priest of Mars. On St. Celestine's face, there dawned a look of calm revelation, but the rest of the Celestinians turned their horrified expression upon the Archmagos in their midst. Yet Call's next words caused great consternation, for he stated flatly that he had not come to see Marnius Calgar. Call traveled across the galaxy to attend to the Lord of Ultramar, and now demanded to be taken to him at once. The auto-reliquary, he stated, must be delivered to the shrine of Rubute Gilliman. The outcry that followed Call's demand was immediate and intense. Marius Calgar's expression grew thunderous as his advisors and chapter source cried out in shock. Hooded scribes frantically record every detail of this dramatic moment. The pilgrims exclaimed in anger and confusion, Grifax, of course, turning upon Call and squaring up to the looming Magos as she barked a demand for immediate explanation. Only the Inari seemed unsurprised by this development. It took a demand for calm from the Vox-amplified voice of First Captain Agamon to quiet things down. As quiet was restored, Agamon counseled Calgar that, with such immediate danger all around and a furious battle to win, the pilgrims should be confined, the mysterious package locked up, and to destroy the Xenos. St. Celestine spoke up then, attempting to explain the divine nature of her mission and the revelations she had received from the Emperor. She found herself staring into the muzzles of several honor guard bolters, not to mention the condemner bolter of Inquisitor Greyfax, whose Puritan suspicions had been fired anew. Clear indication that... You okay there? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just this stupid... <laughs> Inquisitor, and just kind of drives me up the wall. You sorry, sure she's sorry. a Puritan and not a radical. Because seriously, uh, she seems like a radical to me. Yeah, she leans a little bit more in that direction. So, sorry, you're, you're doing a great job. C carry on, sir. Not to mention the condemner bolter of Inquisitor Greyfax, whose Puritan slash radical suspicions has been fired anew. A clear indication that now is the time for the rulers of Ultramar to speak, not their visitors. All eyes rested upon Calgar as he looked to the chief librarian Tigarius for further counsel. In that moment, both the Rain and the Vizark tensed themselves in preparation for battle. Subtle muscle contractions and minuscule alterations in posture, leaving the Inari poised to fight their way out should matters turn against them. The librarian remained silent for several long heartbeats, his weathered features contemplative. 
When he spoke, Tigarius's voice was deep and resonant, rich with power and wisdom. He reminded his chapter master that he had experienced troubling visions in the solar days leading up to the attack upon McCrag. The chief librarian had believed that his visions concerned the fall of Cadia and the subsequent attacks by the Black Legion upon Ultramar. Certainly, they had spurred the readying of the fortress's defenses and the sending of astropathic communiques that had brought the Ultramar defense fleet back to the chapter planet at the critical moment. Now, though, Tigarius declared himself convinced that the visions pertained also to these travelers. The chief librarian said that he was willing to vouch for their presence, even that of the mysterious Eldari, and that he believed their arrival to be the emperor's will made manifest. Hushed whispers ran through the strategium at this pronouncement, and Calgar nodded solemnly. Without further comments, the chapter master bade the Celestinians speak and explain their presence in their own words. All the Celestinians' key players, including Evrain, acquiesced with the exception of Belisarius Call. In fact, no matter how many times Calgar asked the Archmagos, he would not elaborate upon what his auto-reliquary contained or what he expected to occur within the shrine. Showing how great of a multitasker Marnius Calgar was, at the same time that he was listening to the Celestinians, he was also absorbing the continuous flow of information regarding troop deployments, attack and counterattack patterns, enemy drop sites, ammunition counts, and endless other articles of strategic intelligence. From this information, he was, while still listening to the Celestinians, issuing curt orders were required and keeping one eye always fixed upon the ever-shifting holo map that hung overhead. The chapter master wished to understand these strange visitors and the supposed pacts they served, but he would not neglect the defense of his fortress while he did so. Finally, Greyfax concluded their tale, adding that she would be empowered to act as the emperor's representative in this matter and that she would gladly take responsibility for Call's summary execution should he prove false. Calgar raised a hand to forestall further comment, both from the pilgrims and from the frowning Captain Agamon. Then, in a somber voice, he pronounced his verdict. The chapter master would permit the Celestinians to bring their auto-reliquary to the Shrine of Gilliman, though they would do so under heavy ultramarine guard. Calgar said that while he understood and welcomed Agamon's prudent council, they lived in unusual days. But he would not turn his back on the precognitive powers of his own chief librarian or the wisdom of the living saint at such a time as this. Even if he had been given precious little reason to trust Archimago's call, Agamon accepted his lord's judgment with a curt nod. The chapter master gave his permission for the Inari to accompany their allies, for it seemed clear to him that great events were afoot that bore the hand of the emperor upon them. Wasting no time, Calgar issued his orders. He charged Agamon to take personal command of the defense of the fortress of Hera. Tigarius and Voldus would accompany the pilgrims to the shrine of Gilliman, as would a heavily armed complement of honor guard, 3rd Company Astartes, and 1st Company Terminators. Should the Celestinians, or Xenos prove treacherous, 
they would not find themselves short of executioners. Celestine spoke words of thanks to Marnius Kelgar, praising his wife's judgment. By comparison, Ivarine's features were inscrutable, while Cole merely seemed impatient, as though irritated by such petty wrangling and keen to be about his business. Outside, the battle ranged on as McCrag's sun dipped slowly behind the crown mountains. Fire lit the twilight as wave upon wave of heretics plunged from the firmament as the pilgrims and their armed guards made for the shrine of Gilliman. The traitors without redoubled their efforts. The outcome of the battle hanging in the balance. Now entering the shrine of the Avenging Sun was awe-inspiring. Some fell to their knees. Others gasped in glory. Even the Eldari were struck by the sheer awesomeness of the shrine. Only Call remained unbowed by the majesty. He had a job to do. The chamber itself was enormous. A vaulted room through which a warlord-class battle titan could have strewn through without hindrance. Marble columns held aloft, a ceiling of stained armor glass and obsidian inlaid with Theldrite moon silver. Gilliman's greatest deeds were depicted in spectacular paintings and statuary, arranged around the chamber and lit artfully by flickering electrosconces to lend the images the greatest possible gravitas. Huge braziers. A devotional incense burned throughout the shrine, lacing the air with subtle scents. Despite the grandeur of the shrine, the pilgrim's eyes were drawn to the splendid figure enthroned within a pool of stark white illumination at the end of the chamber. There, upon a throne of marble, gold, and finely worked adamantium, sat Robute Gilliman. Esoteric machineries loomed over the Primarch's throne thrumming and whispering as they fed remarkable energies through the ribbed cables to enfold him in a rippling stasis field. Gilman sat as though in repose, his eyes closed, and his blood glinting jewel-like in a delicate necklace around his throat. Gilman wore his finely crafted power armor, still marred by the damage it had sustained during his final duel with the demon Primarch Fulgrim. Across his knees was laid a grand blade of enormous size, the Emperor's Sword once wielded by the hand of the master of mankind himself. Though the Primarch sat peacefully upon his throne, the force of his presence was palpable. Marnius Calgar moved forward to stand at the very base of the steps, bowing his head reverently to his Primarch for a moment before turning to face the assembled pilgrims. Calgar drew a deep breath and then asked once more for Belisarius' call to state his business here. The chapter master had indulged his visitors thus far, but with a desperate battle raging outside his fortress walls, he could offer them no more time or patience. Magus Call inclined his head and told an incredible tale. Call explained that in the years before Gilliman was mortally wounded, the Primarch had summoned him into his confidence. The Magus had been charged with a great labor by Rabute Gilliman. Call stated that he was not at liberty to reveal the nature of his task, forestalling Calgar's angry response by explaining that his labors had been divided into two distinct parts and that he was here to deliver on the first of those. He brought a magnificent new suit of armor fit for the Ultramarine's Primarch, one whose ancillary systems possessed the power to heal Gilliman's grievous wounds. Stunned silence reigned at this announcement. To bring back a living, breathing Primarch? This was truly shocking. Evrain then spoke up, explaining her presence at this moment. She was the emissary of Yuned. Yuned. Thank you. The Eldar God of the Dead and her powers would be vital to Gilliman's restoration. 
reading the puzzlement on her audience's features. Yvrain explained with sharp impatience. Not very emissary-like, but what do you expect with an Eldari talking to a Monke? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. But she did state that such a miracle could not be brought about without sacrifice. Call had labored long and hard to fulfill the Primarch's request, but without Inead's aid... Inead's... Thank you. The fruits of that labor would not be enough. In order for Rabute Gilliman to live once more, first, he must die. Where Call's words had been met by shocked silence, Evrons raised a storm. Kalgar exclaimed his fury at such notions, vowing that no Xenos witch would ever lay hands upon the Primarch while he drew breath. Grandmaster Aldric Voldus moved to stand alongside Kalgar, his expression grim, and Greyfax and Marshal Amorik followed his example. The surrounding Ultramarines raised their weapons, pointing them at Kal and the Unari. They awaited only their master's order to open fire. Yet others raised their voices in support of this apparent insanity. Kal blurted loudly that he was bound by the terms of his pact with Gilliman, and that he must bring it to completion. St. Celestine, too, spoke up imploring those around her to have faith and asserting that this was indeed the will of the emperor. Yet most unexpected of the proponents was chief librarian Tigerius, who strode forward, four staff ringing across the stone floor to stand alongside Mago's call. Tigerius spoke in a calm voice that cut through the clamor, asking Lord Calgar to trust his counsel and saying once more that he had seen hints of this future in his visions. It was a scene of anger and confusion, but it was about to get so much worse. Amongst the storm of angry voices and brandished weapons, Marnius Calgar's box chimed insistently in his ear. Angrily, the chapter master accepted the priority box hail, but his words of rebuke died on his lips. Calgar's voice boomed over the commotion, his shout of warning coming a split second before the stained armor glass of the shrine ceiling exploded inward. Shattering crystal filled the air. Shards the size of storm shields embedded themselves in the walls, floor, and armored bodies. And Ultramarine's Thunderhawk gunships slammed into the shrine's floor and skidded out of control. The Thunderhawk slammed into the shrine's far wall, demolishing a statue of Gilman battling Alpharius. I am Alpharius. Shut up. Before listing into <laughs> its side with a deafening clang. Even as the stricken vehicle was settling to a stop, its assault ramp burst open with a shriek of torn metal. Spilling from within came Chaos Space Marines in twisted armor of black and gold, and deafening war cries ringing from their Vox grills. The Ultramarines responded instantly, their bolters roaring to life. A hail of shots ripped into the Black Legion, puffs of blood bursting from their metal forms as they jerked and danced amidst the fuselage. Still, the Ultramarines were not quick enough to prevent catastrophe. Screaming their defiance, a trio of raptors jetted through the rain of fire to slam spiked icons into the temple's floor. Tall spears of adamantium and iron, the icons were festooned with macabre trophies and anointed in demonic gore. Empiric energies whirled around them, and the reality rent apart with the calamitous thunder of teleportation flares. As the surviving raptors leapt clear, a hulking wedge of Black Legion Chaos Terminators appeared. Dozens of elite killers clad in spiked and tusked tactical dreadnought armor. With exemplary discipline, the Ultramarines coolly shifted their aim. Bolts and blasts tore into the Black Legion Terminators, ringing from their armor with a cacophonous fury. Yet these were chosen warriors, imbued with the demonic gifts of the Chaos Gods. 
Though several of the massive black legionaries stumbled or fell, the rest shrugged off the salvo and began a grinding advance, firing back as they came. Marnius Calgar looked about himself aghast. The shrine of Gilliman, the sacred heart of the Ultramarine chapter, had been profaned by the minions of chaos. It was clear to all that the enemy was driving for the fallen Primarch. Kelgar was still deeply suspicious of Kull and the Inari, and those who had accompanied them. Yet here was a threat far clearer and more diabolical than them. With a stern demand that his visitors refrain from acting until he had the situation under control, the chapter master activated the energy fields around his power fists, known as the Gauntlets of Ultramar, and strode into the fight. He was not alone. Turning from the shrine, St. Celestine drew her ardent blade. With a hymn of battle upon her lips, the living saint leapt towards the foe. Almeric did the same, bellowing oaths of hate, as he and his last few battle brothers read headlong at the Black Legionnaires. Grandmaster Voldos, too, moved to join the fight. He bit off orders into his Voxby as he advanced, loosing shots from his storm bolter, even as he called in reinforcements from his Grey Knight battle brothers. The Imperial counterattack met the Black Legion assault in the middle of the shrine with a rending crash of metal on metal, and blood fell like rain as the two forces tore into one another. Greyfax's bionic eye switched rapidly through the multiple scrying filters, collating tactical data and listing threat assessments at the speed of a thought. To her four, the Inquisitor saw St. Celestine slicing her way through the Black Legion Terminators, spinning and leaping through the air as she clove the traitors apart with her blade. Nearby, Marnius Calgar and Grandmaster Voldos fought side by side, weathering the thunderous blows of their hulking enemies as they smashed and impaled one traitor after another. As Greyfax watched, Voldos loosed a ruinous shockwave of psychic force from his outstretched gauntlet, hurling a Chaos Terminator through the air and demolishing another towering statue. Gotta love them green knights. <laughs> Indeed. And still, the traitors pressed forward. And as they did so, new warriors appeared to fill the gaps in their ranks. Teleport energies flared again, clearing to reveal a trio of Terminator-armored Black Legion sorcerers, flanked by monstrous warriors of flesh metal and living weaponry. At the same time, Dreadclaw drop pods plunged through the shattered armor glass above, slamming into the ground behind the advancing Black Legionnaires. From within spilled more of Abaddon's chosen warriors, heretic Astartes, including bellowing corn berserkers, charging forward to join the fray. The Ultramarines stood their ground, despite being increasingly outnumbered. Veterans rattled volleys of fire into the advancing foe, ripping Black Legionnaires off their feet or blasting them into glowing ash with bolts of plasma. Blue-armored Terminators dueled with their Black-armored counterparts, heavy flamers spewing fire across adamantium and ceramite as power fists delivered crushing blows. Marshal Almeric and his brothers hurled themselves in alongside the Ultramarines, howling chainswords and lashing lightning claws, reaping a tally of traitor lives. One Black Templar fell to the chain fist swipe, but still his brothers fought on. It was a glorious battle, a battle that played out in Greyfax's mind from this day until her end, a battle between good and evil, righteousness and despair. Yet as she joined the mighty fray, she noticed that not all of the pilgrims, nor indeed all of their hosts, had joined the fight. The Inquisitor swore she saw Call hunched, spider-like, over the controls of his auto-reliquary. The Magos' metallic fingers dance across the runic keys, his mechandrites slithering from one socket port to another, while the Inari and the Skatari stood guard over him. Beside them stood the Ultramarine's chief librarian. 
Warp light glowed from his eyes and weaving around his skull top staff. As Greyfax watched, several frothing berserkers charged at Tigerius. The librarian barked a string of syllables that caused the corn worshippers to implode in a crumpled mass of flesh and metal. Greyfax was about to move towards the few, intending to command call to cease in the name of the Holy Ordos of the Inquisition. Yet at that moment, a stitching line of autocannon fire marched along the top of the pew. Explosions of fire and shrapnel burst around the Inquisitor, hurling her from her feet. Greyfax fired back at her attackers, lashing out with her telepathic powers as she did so. She was pinned for the moment. Marnius Calgar, on the other hand, swung his right gauntlet in a punching arc, hammering it up through his enemy's guard and catching a Chaos Terminator square under the jaw. His enemy's helm disappeared in a blizzard of metal and blood, his corpse slamming down onto its back with bone-breaking force. He was about to get stuck in when he caught sight of movement at the base of Gilliman's throne, and cold horror clinched in his chest. Kelgar saw the Martian tech priest step back from his auto-reliquary with the air of one completing a satisfying task. The dome-shaped device hummed forward, unfurling like the petals of some huge carnivorous flower. The watching chapter master was at the wrong angle to see inside the machine, but he had a fleeting impression of glowing energies, unfurling mechadendrites, clamping pincher limbs, and whirring bone drills that filled him with revulsion. No! Bellowed Kelgar, finding his voice. I command you to stop. In the Emperor's name, Brother Tigerius, stop them. The chapter master's dismay rose to new heights as Tigerius looked straight at him and shook his head. Do it, shouted the chief librarian, blazing psychic energies into the foe that pressed close around him. And may the Emperor condemn me if you have played me false, Xenos. In desperation, Kelgar raised his bolters and prepared to fire at the Eldar Witch, but Ivrane's blade fell lightning right. fast, hacking through the cabling that fed power to Gilliman's stasis field. Energies flared, and from within the closing arms of the auto-reliquary, Kelgar heard the rattling sigh that would haunt him until his dying day. What have you done? He roared, despair and fury blazing through him like a firestorm. Kelgar turned upon the traitors that had forced this terrible tragedy to come to pass and waded back into the fight with unstoppable fury. The auto-reliquary engulfed Bute Gilliman and his throne entirely, runic designators and auto-lumen flickering in mesmerizing patterns across its surface. As those spurred by the sight, the Black Legionnaires redoubled the intensity of their attack. Yet the traitors of the Imperium grew ever closer to the Primarch, their jowls slavering in anticipation for the kill to come. All across the temple, the dwindling forces of the Imperium fought like lions to hold back their foes. Celestine still hacked and cut, span and leapt, leaving a trail of slain black legionaries in her wake. Arc Magos call, his task done, sent blasts of searing energy rippling through the chaos ranks. Marshal Almorick, accompanied now by just two remaining sword brethren, fought tirelessly atop a heap of black legion corpses. Teleport energies flared once more and a squad of Grey Knight Paladins flashed into being, bolstering their Grandmaster's psychic defenses with their own. For a moment, the battle hung in the balance. Then, a second flight of Dreadclaw drop pods began their descent upon the shrine, fires billowing around their hulls as they fell. No scattered handful of reinforcements was this, but a pinpoint attack wave of ten armored pods, held in reserve by the Masters of Chaos, and hurled in to strike the killing blow. 
As one, the pods open to disgorge squad after squad of heretical killers. An entire traitor warband surged into battle, deployed in mass to sweep away all resistance in the shrine. It was a force whose combined strength would subdue worlds, 100 superhuman murderers, fresh and ready for battle. The Black Legion reinforcements struck the Imperium defense like a battering ram. Ultramarine veterans and honor guard fell as they were riddled with overwhelming bolt fire. Courageous Terminators crumpled, and Marnius Calgar roared in defiance. Marshal Almerich and his brothers charged down the mound of corpses rather than be caught in the open by the foe's massed firepower, determining to hack down as many of their tainted kin as they could before they were slain. St. Celestine, too, swooped down upon the massive foes. Everywhere the massive Black Legions pressed forward, engulfing the shrinking islands of the Imperial Resistance, while sorceress energies continued to tear at the shrine itself. Not a single defender took a step back, but it was clear that their lives would now be measured in mere seconds. The foremost Black Legionaries were mere tearing yards away from the foot of Gilliman's throne when the ruined panels and Call's auto-reliquary flickered from red to green. A single chime sounded, a clear, pure note that cut through the clangor like a knife. The Archmagos emitted an uncharacteristic blurt of Beinhark triumph. The next moment, the tomb of Rubute Gilliman opened with a hiss of exposed gas. Where before the Primarch had sat, a pale stasis-locked revenant, now the avenging sun stood awake, alert and very much alive. His presence was immense, filling the shrine with its crushing pressure. Gilliman was clad in a magnificent new suit of power armor, an ornate masterwork that had traveled all the way from the forges of Mars within Cal's auto-reliquary. In one hand, the ultramarine Primarch held the Emperor's sword, lit now from hilt to tip with leaping flames, and in his eyes was a look of such murderous intensity that even the loyalists within the shrine quailed to see it. All within the shrine froze, until an incoherent scream of rage shattered the silence. A single corn berserker charged headlong through the stunned combatants to launch himself in a flying leap at the Primarch. Gilliman moved with such blistering speed that the Unari themselves would have struggled to match it. His burning blade drew a pyrotechnic arc through the air as it swung, bisecting the corn berserker at the waist and hurling his severed halves to the ground. The avenging sun was alive and well, and was not happy with what he saw. One might say, pissed. Indeed. As the Chaos Worshippers' armored corpse crashed to the floor, the spell was broken. With a great howl of hate, the Black Legion warriors surged towards Rabute Gilliman. Wordlessly, the noble demigod strode forward to meet them, and the carnage truly began. Saint Celestine looked upon the towering form of the Primarch Reborn and knew the abiding satisfaction of her faith being borne out once more. A son of the god emperor himself, a demigod of battle to lead the Imperium out of the darkness that, with each passing solar day, seemed more certain to engulf it entirely. In what greater endeavor could she have played a part? What single event could possibly be more important than the manifestation of this breathtaking miracle? Humbly, Celestine offered up her profound thanks to the Emperor for permitting her to be a part of such a wondrous thing. Snarling, a black legionary lunged at Celestine with a serrated blade in hand. 
Presumably, he thought her distracted in her moment of sublime gratitude, but he could not have been more mistaken. With the fires of faith searing through her veins, Celestine turned the golden radiance of her gaze upon the heretic and smiled beatifically as her ardent blade came up in a single swift movement and ran the heretic Astartes through. Even as her assailant fell back with blood gushing from his mouth, the living saint launched herself skyward and soared across the shrine. She landed beside Inquisitor Greyfax, who stood atop the primary sarcophagus, pouring bolter fire into the heretics massed on every side. My bad, shouted Greyfax over the roar of her bolter. I guess I shall pay for my disbelief in you. Vigilance is not a sin, cat replied Celestine as she slashed through the enemies before her. Since we both serve the Emperor, so I'll let it slide. Indeed, said Crayfax with a curt nod. Let's do this. Leroy Jenkins! With that, she lunged into the foe with blade raised, Celestine leaping at her side. Okay, okay. Wait a minute, brother. <laughs> Well, well, funny. There, there is no way they said that, right? Well, I don't care for the sanctimonious talking, so I paraphrase. And I don't know if the Inquisitor liked chicken. Okay, fair oh. enough. <laughs> carry, carry on, sir. Sorry for the interruption. The first victim of the newly reborn Primarch was the sorcerer whose powers had shaken the temple to its foundation. Gilliman raised his mighty gauntlet the hand of dominion and a storm of armor piercing fire erupted from beneath it to rip the tainted psyker to pieces next to fall were the remaining black legion berserkers following their comrades example they flung themselves screaming at the reborn primarch like their fellows they were torn asunder smashed from the air with terrifying speed Gilliman was running now storming forward through the hail of bolts unleashed by the Black Legionnaires. Rounds upon rounds exploded against the Primarch's armor, but none could pierce its inviolable plates. As he crashed into the front ranks of the Black Legionaries, a building, booming roar of pure violence. The first blow threw a Black Legionary high into the air, blood streaming behind the corpse in a red trail. His second strike smashed the traitor Terminator into a bronze and marble column with enough force to drive the Chaos Worshipper clean through it and out the other side. On it went, the Primarch moving with such speed that traitor Star's human reflexes couldn't even save them. On it went, the Primarch moving with such speed that the traitor Astartes Superhuman reflexes couldn't even save them. None could match Gilliman. The avenging sun was reborn in the fires of combat, and none would stand against him on that day. As the Black Legion hurled itself towards the towering warrior in its midst, so the pressure lessened upon the loyalists in the shrine. Full of vengeance, inspired by the spectacle of the Primarch, the last of the Celestinians and their allies threw themselves back into the fight 
with renewed vigor. Honestly, I don't think that he really needed the help. Indeed, brother. As Gilliman cleared the foes from around the foot of his throne, Tigarius, Kal, and the Inari followed him into the gap. Too many glorious deeds were done that day by the Celestine Crusade to give Chronicle to. But at the end of it all, they followed the newly reborn Primarch into the crucible of battle, watching the Primarch's back and, dare I say, occasionally saving his bacon. With every blow, the Primarch of the Ultramarine sent mutated corpses tumbling through the air. His expression was graven granite and frozen hate, a mask of vengeful anger that endured millennia. For Gilliman, his last memory was a desperate battle against the tainted brother, fraternal contest of godlike strength and barbed hateful taunts, then poison and pain beyond endurance. Now he found himself in strange surroundings, facing a twisted horde of creatures that were nightmarish parodies of the Adeptus Astartes ideal. Not that his apparent allies struck Gilliman as much more familiar, but he could at least detect who in this vast sepulcher was tainted by chaos and who was not. For now, that was enough. The primer compartmentalized his questions for later and concentrated solely on the task at hand. The Black Legionnaires continued to hurl themselves at the reborn Lord of Ultramar in a desperate attempt to lay Gilliman low. Yet they were laughably outmatched in almost every regard, sweeping the Emperor's sword in wide arcs and firing off hammering volleys from the Hand of Dominion. The Primarch was the Reaper of Death that day, and all who stood before him met their fate. Their blood soon flowed free, and they dropped in lifeless husks. Blood for the Blood God! Skulls for the Skull Throne! Shut up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Anyways, those that saw their doom and disagreed with it fled the shrine, revealing the prone form of Marnius Calgar. His armor cracked and his face beaten bloody. Gilliman paused for a moment in his rampage, looking down upon this fallen son with an unreadable expression on his face. Good old Cal. Stirred, one eye opening to look up at the Primarch Reborn. Satisfied that his scion lived, Gilliman pressed on, leaving the fallen chapter master to stare in disbelief at his resurrected father. Across the chamber, the Grey Knights were driving the surviving Chaos Sorcerers back. Both heretics were powerful psychers, but neither could hold a candle to the Grand Master Voldus's preeminent power. With a cold smile, the Grandmaster swung his lightning-wreathed nemesis demon hammer, Malleus Argyrum, in an unstoppable arc and smashed the helm of the closest sorcerer. Sermite flesh and bone exploded in a crackling spray, and the traitor toppled backwards as a headless corpse. The last of the heretic leaders lost his nerve, barking orders at his underlings to cover his retreat from the shrine. The sorcerer turned, lumbering in his terminator armor, and found himself face to face with Robute Gilliman, sc 
screaming witch light rushed in as the sorcerer attempted to conjure a potent curse. Before he could even spit the jagged syllables to unleash his power, the sorcerer was hoisted bodily off the ground. Gilliman's hand of dominion clamped firmly around the traitor's gorget. In a breathtaking display of strength, the Primarch lifted his foe high into the air, Gilliman's face a cold mask of disgust. The sorcerer made a last croaking attempt to speak before the Emperor's sword slammed through the traitor's midriff and ripped swiftly upward. Ancient armor and corrupted flesh parted as easily as a single sheet of paper, and the sorcerer's innards gushed out in a rush to spatter upon the flagstones. Leerlist reaps like wheat by the seemingly unstoppable Primarch and his allies. The last of the Black Legionaries turned and fled. Not a single one of them would escape the fortress alive. Suffice to say, when all was said and done, the reinforcements had nothing to do upon their arrival but to drop on their knees in awe before the being that had slain all foe in the temple, their reborn Primarch, Rabute Gilliman. <clears throat> well, as you can imagine, after the defeat, the victors held a coronation for the Primarch. And soon after this, Rabute pushed out the forces of chaos from Macrog and eventually the realm of Ultramar. He was then treated to a triumph. Of course. Yes, yes, of course. And then took his campaign on the road to Holy Terra. Yet all was not well in the rest of the universe. The resurrection of Rebute Gilliman sent waves of psychic energy rolling outwards through the Immaterium, racing tsunamis of turmoil that did not go unnoticed. One by one, the champions of the dark gods of chaos became aware of the resurrected Primarch. Reclining amidst an endless banquet of souls, Fulgrim pouted in displeasure as demon imps whispered the news into his ear. The demon primarch of the emperor's children bestirred himself from his velvet throne, vowing to his depraved god Slanesh that this time he would ensure Gulliman's eternal fall from grace. Other dark lords, too, saw the glowing beacon of Gulliman's rebirth from afar and began to marshal their forces accordingly. Abaddon summoned and bound the lord of change, Karios, Fateweaver, sending him winging his way across the galaxy to gather fresh forces against the Primarch. Upon far-flung Hellworlds, Magnus the Red and the Death Lord Mortarion received word of their brother's awakening. Their reactions were as different as fire and ice. Mortarion raged, a cold and violent storm of anger whirling around him until its echoes in real space seeded seven new and terrible plagues upon luckless Imperial worlds. Magnus by comparison, gave a booming laugh of utter delight, like a fortune teller who flips their final tarot card and gains sudden insight. The Crimson King saw now before him paths of glorious fate, where before they had been a wilderness of confusion. Magnus began to issue orders, his words bursting forth as swarms of crystalline insects. They flitted away to marshaled the thrall bands of his once proud space marine legion, the Thousand Sons. Another challenge, another enemy to destroy. Magnus leapt at the challenge. War was coming on a scale that had not been seen in thousands of years. <clears throat> now, before we go, and before we give our conclusion, Yuxin, uh, there is a moment that I wish to go into about the character of Rabute Gilliman. 
and it takes place after his coronation before he pushes chaos from McCrog's door. Now, this this kind of takes place anyways after he's kind of pushed everybody off. A few times that he's actually alone. Yeah. And we, as chroniclers anyways, were able to actually delve into and actually see some of these... Uh, um, Oh, shoot. What do they call it? So he wasn't actually alone because we were there. Yeah, we kind of saw what was taking place. But um, <clears throat> I do believe, anyways, this gives a little bit of Gilman's character, which I think is actually very important. In our experience, anyways, this is followed. Everything Gilliman knew was gone, replaced by the madness and horror of a future he had tried so desperately to prevent 10,000 standard years before. Rabute Gilliman settled heavily into his new throne. The Primarch had dispatched all of his attendants and advisors, even sending his honor guard to wait outside the sanctum. At last, he could allow a little of his sorrow, trauma, and pain to show. And Gilman let his mask drop with a sigh of relief. One by one, the Primarch had spoken with each of the Celestinians, the lords of the Ultramarines, and even Ivrain and the Unari. Solar days had been spent in deep, earnest conversation, Gilman using every iota of his statesman's guile to set his guests at ease, to tease from them as much information as he could, and to hide his reactions to their words. Gilman had thanked each of his visitors for their insights and their service to the Imperium, inwardly assessing each of his guests and showing them whatever aspects of his personality surest to render them sympathetic and voluble. Though he had not shown it, each fresh revelation struck the Primarch like a cannon shell. He was exhausted from staving off bewilderment and horror, hollowed out by pain. Gilman groaned and placed his head in his hands. A millennium has passed, he murmured, unsure to whom he spoke. He knew only that he had to vocalize his situation before it drove him mad. Not for the first time since his return, Gilman wished for one of his brothers to speak with. They, at least, might have understood. Thousands of years, he said. And look what has become of them, of us, idolatry, ignorance, suffering and squalor in the name of a god who'd never desired the title. Gilman shook his head and stood, pacing across the chapter master's sanctum to stare up at the banners hanging on the western wall. Each was the height of an imperial knight, a cascade of masterfully woven cloth depicting the glories of the ultramarines. Slain alien beasts, executed heretic despots, worlds saved, and worlds burned. But so too was the Aquila of the Imperium, and there, presiding over several of the heraldic designs, a figure with throne and halo who must surely be the emperor. You failed, father, said Gilliman, his words tired and leaden with sorrow. You failed your sons, and we, in turn, failed you. And now, to compound our arrogance and vanglory, we have failed them too. Did Horus not say you sought godhood? He built a rebellion upon that claim. How he would gloat to see the Imperium now. Anger surged through the Lord of Ultramar, and he clenched his fist with an effort of self-restraint. He imagined destroying this chamber, tearing it apart and hurling its wreckage around like a wild beast. Yet he did not. Though he wrestled with despair, the Primarch knew that he could not let his weakness show. Marnius Calgar, Tigerius, Agamemnon, all the others, they looked at him as though he was the emperor himself. Gilliman was painfully aware of his symbolic quality and of how desperate and dark the hour had become. 
He must show nothing but strength to his gene sons, lest his despair taint their hearts too. And yet, would it really matter? He sighed, turning his back on the banners and pacing across the chamber, the stare through a stained glass window. Out there, across the war-torn immensity of the fortress of Hera, Gilliman saw the sweeping bulwark where his old chambers had once been. They had belonged to his foster father even before him. He had laid his plans there, spoken to his brothers, laughed, raged, and even cried. Now they were gone, buried beneath ugly agglomerations and buttresses of gun batteries. It was apt, he thought bitterly. Gilliman's anger spilled over, and he spun on his heel, staring up at the woven emperor with accusing eyes. Why do I still live? What more do you want from me? I gave everything I had to you, to them. Yet look what is made of our dream. This bloated, rotting carcass of an empire is driven not by reason and hope, but by fear, hate, and ignorance. Whether we had all burned in the fires of Horace's ambition than to see this live. Even as he said it, Gilman heard the lie in his words. Amongst all of his brothers, none had been more idealistic than Rabute Gilman. None had envisioned a brighter future, not just for mankind, but also for the warriors of the Astartes. That flame of hope had been a part of him for as long as he could remember. Even now, as it was smothered by the darkness and woe, Gilman realized that his flame endured. There's hope still, he told himself, turning back to the window and placing one armored palm against it. He stared out at the work gangs, laboring to repair the damage of war, and the Ultramarines stood proud and determined upon the ramparts. They had been born into the dark millennium and know nothing but the hardship, suffering, and despair of unending conflict. Yet they still struggled on, unbowed, despite the countless enemies ranged against them. Gilman had seen a better age, one of hope and triumph. What right had he, a superhuman son of the Emperor himself, to show any less strength and courage than his followers born in darkness? Gilman had seen what humanity could achieve. Moreover, he knew what fruits Belisarius Call's labor had borne beneath the surface of Mars. He believed that a better future for the Imperium was still possible. But only if those who tormented mankind were first defeated. All of this misery, said Gilman, all of this pain and suffering, it is not the doing of humanity, but of those who have betrayed us. Too long have the pawns of chaos dictated our species' fate. This must end. Gilman felt new strength fill him. Inspired by it, the Primarch took his pain and his desolation and locked them away in his mind. But his rage he kept. That he would have use for. Later there would be time to mourn, to reason, to plan anew. Now was the time to fight and to make his father's enemies pay for every horror they had inflicted upon the Imperium. <clears throat> now, like him or hate him, this shows really true character. And the man has something that I think most uh, are missing the 41st millennium, which would be hope. While there will be trials and struggles, victories and defeats, wise decisions and fatal mistakes, I believe Gilliman has a chance to throw back the darkness and perhaps show humanity a shining future, not some cesspool of fear and decay. Well, I think we've kind of reached the end of our tale here for, for the time being. Um, you got anything to say about this anyways, brother, before we uh, wrap up? This just popped into my mind, but 
I wonder how much faith Calgar has when it comes to um, Agamon's ability to protect defensive areas. <laughs> what do you mean? It's like, I leave the defense of the fortress to you. Like, less than a day later, crashing through past who the fortress are traitors. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, but... <clears throat> In Agamemnon's defense, anyways, I mean, it was actually an Ultramarine's Stormbird that first ran through there. So he didn't know, anyways, that it had already been taken over by Black Legionnaires. He's just like, oh, crap, it's coming in. Raptors that were following it. No, 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 the Raptors came out of the 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 the, the Thunderbird or Stormbird. Stormbird. No, they didn't. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. Because remember, anyways, the bottom or the back end, anyways, opens up and then all of a sudden these Raptors pop out. So he's seeing this thing just kind of flying through the air, and he's like, crap, that's one of ours, and so that's why they didn't shoot it down. Now, the drop pods afterwards, anyways, I mean, I'm guessing trying to shoot a drop pod is like trying to shoot a cannon shell, just with how fast, anyways, it's flying through the air, which also makes me wonder, anyways, how anything can survive in a drop pod, because <laughs> it's flying down through the orbit that fast, but that's, that's just a way of slowing it down. <laughs> It's just like, and it hits the ground and everybody's dead. Good job. Okay, <laughs> okay well, <laughs> what did you think? What, what do you think of the Crusaders and the, um, well, the fact, anyways, that Rabute's back, that in and of itself, anyways, is kind of interesting. But, well, you already, we both pretty much had the same feeling when it comes to Grey Packs, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And, and, <laughs> After this, anyways, now, okay, we can kind of get into a few of these characters, but Greyfax is kind of like a exiled, kind of. It's like she's sent on this noble quest, anyways, to find these artifacts, but it's just kind of like, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> Not before she finds somebody that was in the same position as her and then just shooting the person. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. She ends oh, up really? finding somebody that was suffering from the same thing that she was, a Trezine, and she's like, oh, you're yeah. a heretic, and kills her. <laughs> or them. I don't know if it was her, but them. Instead of going, well, we could probably get rid of those for you, it's like, nope, death. <laughs> yeah. No, no. She is annoying. <laughs> And okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but Celestine, I think, still is around, right? She hasn't done her great disappearing act yet. She might have. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, we'll probably have to look into that. Uh, the Black Templar, though, he ends up later on, anyways, dying in, I believe, the Terran Crusade. He uh, ends up, well, the way he dies, though, is actually pretty cool. He ends up uh, um, severely wounding this greater demon uh, prince of, I think, Corn. Or maybe it was Zinch. Well, it was a greater demon, anyways, of one of the two, anyways, and it gave enough time for Rabute to actually end up uh, um, killing this thing. Oh. So, yeah, he sacrificed himself, anyways, to save the Primarch, and on top of that, anyways, killed one of the big baddies of Chaos. So it was, it was kind of a cool death, anyways, for actually a pretty interesting fellow. As we know, anyways, Call was part of the Primaris Project, which takes place here a little bit later, right? By the way, what happens to him after this? Call? Yeah. Well, the Primaris Project. No, he had done that over the 10,000 years. Yeah, but he starts to actually set it up anyways. When they get back to Terra and Mars, he really actually starts to set it up and put it into like uh, um, 
full swing, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> um, other than that, I don't know. Quite frankly, I thought you would know. I mean, you're you're the 41st millennium guy. I'm the 31st millennium guy. <laughs> um, and as you know, anyways, uh, for those who don't know, anyways, Rabute Gilman he ends up leading the Imperium. Well, technically, the High Lords of Terra are still leading it. You know, what the hell with the High Lords of Terra? <laughs> Still hasn't off them yet. He'll find a way. I hope he finds a way. But <laughs> um, <laughs> at least these ones. I don't mind anyways that they have a whole council of like humanity because that kind of makes sense. But yeah. these guys are so corrupt at this point that it's just kind of like, dude, you got to get rid of them. And as you know, as we've already kind of talked about anyways, that's kind of Rabute's for <laughs> forte. I mean, he, he did it on Macrog. He can do it again anyways in Terra. <laughs> so... I do think, though, that it really does kind of portray uh, Gilliman, anyways, as uh, I think he's a lot less arrogant in this time frame than he was in the 31st. But I think that's because he's he's significantly grown and he's looking around everywhere anyways and everything sucks. <laughs> he's like, this is this is not what I left. <laughs> you guys are terrible. <laughs> it could have been so much better. <laughs> well, well folks I think that is all the time we have for today but join us next week for notable Ultramarine characters yes and if you have any questions feel free to leave them in the comments or send them to our website at www.ashraka.com that's www.ashraka.com indeed and as always <clears throat> Until next time, this is Ekthar. And Yuxin, signing off.